shout your name, and we sing praises to you because of what you've done. God, your scripture is clear, and it tells us that, God, we've fallen short, and we've broken your laws, and we deserve your punishment. We deserve to be judged because of that sin, but because of your love and your mercy and your grace, you've provided a way of salvation through Christ. God, that we could be saved. And God, because of what you've done, we want to shout praises to you. We want to live lives that are obedient to you because of what you've done. We give you all the praise in your name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Good morning, everybody. Last time, uh, last time we studied the truth-telling psalms, the, the testimonials, I was personally touched by the raw power of testimony in those ancient songs. You know, those testimony psalms always, every one of them ends by noting the import of rejoicing. Like, uh, like Psalm 30, great testimony, ends this way. Psalm 30 ended this way. You turned my lament, you, God, turned my lament into dancing. You removed my sackcloth, my, my mourning clothes, and clothed me with gladness so that I can sing to you and not be silent. Lord my God, I will praise you forever. Beautiful, rejoicing forever. Today we get to expand on that because there are a slew of psalms that are dedicated to the idea, not, not just that we can rejoice, but that we must rejoice, that we need to rejoice. And I mean that, it is a need. In fact, rejoicing is one of the most important things that human beings can do. It not only grounds us in truth, did you know rejoicing positively impacts our health? I was chewing this idea over with a friend of mine via email, and he wrote me the following insightful note. We're talking about rejoicing in the Psalms and how important it is. He wrote me this, Wayne, it seems like our culture, or perhaps it's just my family, has a hard time rejoicing. We seldom take time to celebrate the little victories and blessings along the way. It seems to me that we hinder ourselves by not doing it. If we do not take time to celebrate the tiny wins, then all we have left to remember are the losses. I once heard it said that it takes a ton more good things to get us over one bad thing, thing being words, events, whatever. He goes on. When we do not celebrate the good, we let the bad win. No wonder so many people are on antidepressants. I shouldn't have to add this, but probably need to, especially if you end up quoting me on the radio. Rejoicing, celebrating, praising needs to be done with intelligence. You cannot celebrate a good thing by doing a bad thing, like getting blitzed, going into debt, indulging gluttony, or fill in the blank with the sin of your choice. Close quote. How brilliant is that? Now, how about us, you and I? Are we guilty of letting the bad win? Do you let the bad win? Are we being beaten down by all the bad news, all those idiots on social media, all the very real struggles of life, so defeated that we forget about rejoicing? I have serious news for you. I don't know if you know this, but I, I watch you people on social media. 
It's one of the main ways I learn about you and pray for you, and I have learned that you need help. <laughs> you need help in this area. I am sorry to hit you hard, but I do it because I love you. You need to learn to rejoice. E even our public institutions recognize the significance of rejoicing. If you go today onto the Frisco School District website, you're going to see a three-week challenge devoted to this need. Why would a school district propose a challenge asking the entire community to rejoice, to write down each day's blessing every day for three weeks? I'll tell you why. The district was motivated by what we all observe every day. As a people, we have become experts at complaining and downright poor at praising. We have become experts at complaining and downright poor at praising. And it is killing us. It is especially killing our public and private spaces. To change, we need to replace our whining with the truth of rejoicing. So let's humbly go to the Lord and ask him to change this in us. Amen? Pray with me, please. Father, I pray for myself. I pray for all of my wonderful fellow whiners. And I beg you to change us. Lord, open up our spirits to your word so that, we are, so that we are changed, so that we are written from the inside out in a different way, so that even as we go through all the very understandable and appropriate laments and pains of life, we are people of rejoicing because that changes everything. I pray this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Open your Bible, please, to Psalm 66. Psalm 66, we could turn to many, we will reference others, but I particularly enjoy the motivation to rejoice here in Psalm 66. Let's read it, uh, starting at the beginning, before verse 1. For the choir director, a song, a psalm. Shout joyfully to God, all the earth. Sing about the glory of his name. Make his praise glorious. Say to God, how awe-inspiring are your works. Your enemies will cringe before you because of your great strength. All the earth will worship you and sing praise to you. They will sing praise to your name. See la. Come and see the wonders of God. His acts for humanity are awe-inspiring. He turned the sea into dry land, and they crossed the river on foot. There we rejoiced in him. He rules forever by his might. He keeps his eye on the nations. The rebellious should not exalt themselves. See la. Praise our God, you peoples. Let the sound of his praise be heard. He keeps us alive and does not allow our feet to slip. For you, God, tested us. You refined us as silver is refined. You lured us into a trap. You placed burdens on our backs. You let men ride over our heads. We went through fire and water, but you brought us out to abundance. I will enter your house with burnt offerings. I will pay you my vows that my lips promised and my mouth spoke during my distress. I will offer you fattened sheep as burnt offerings with the fragrant smoke of rams. I will sacrifice oxen with goats. Selah. Come and listen, all who fear God, and I will tell you what he's done for me. I cried out to him with my mouth, and praise was on my tongue. Literally in the Hebrew, it says praise was under my tongue, uh, meaning it was ready. Um, if I had been aware of malice in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. However, God has listened. He has paid attention to the sound of my prayer. May God be praised. He has not turned away my prayer or turned his faithful love from me. As we headline in your notes, open your bulletin, you'll see on the left side of our notes, we rejoice because God is glorious. We rejoice because God is glorious. Such is the declaration in verses 1 through 4. In verse 1, all of the earth is called to worship God because his character is glorious. In verse 2, look at it. Glory and glorious are wrapped around the name of God. Now, you may know that name in Scripture is used as a summary for the, in, the entire character, the, the being, the essence of someone. By very cleverly wrapping glory around name of God, the Psalm's telling us that God's essence, his character is glorious 
and that is worthy of praise. Open your eyes to God's character, and you cannot help but praise him, right? It's natural. It is natural to praise, to just, to just yell out when you see something glorious. For example, for example, this week, baseball season begins, opening day. Yeah. And with that in mind, it seems appropriate to go back and remember something glorious from just a few summers ago. Go back with me to a weekend in 2013. They are pitch on the way. Belton, deep dive field. In the spare, it is gone. At the ball, goodbye. Field on his come back with two bombs in the bottom of the ninth inning. The first by A.J. Brzezinski to tie it, and then Giovanni Soto, the game winner, right down the left field line, his second career walk-off home run. That's some kind of win right there, boy. Next night. To the left field corner, if it's there, it's a winner. Against the evil California Angels, no less. It's a madhouse at home plate for the second straight night. A 340-foot opposite field blast by Leonis Martin. A three-run bolt out of the blue, and the Rangers have won two in a row over the Angels. Tonight, they came back from four runs down. Last night, it was three runs down. But wait, there's getting more. ready to uh, celebrate another walk-off victory if they possibly can. Beltre, a drive to that. I don't know what's going to happen. Goodbye, they've done it again. Three consecutive walk-off home runs. The Rangers sweep the Angels two to one tonight. A first in franchise history. Three consecutive games won by walk-off home runs. Now, I, I don't even, even if you're not wise enough to be a baseball fan, um, that is awesome, is it not? I mean, did, did you look at those players? Look, did you listen to the crowd? It, it's just, you're caught up. They are praising something amazing, something glorious. Three walk-offs in a row? That's the natural reaction, right? Okay, with that in mind, please listen up. When we look at God, we witness something even more glorious than a walk-off weekend. We witness, we witness the very essence of victory. We, we witness the very meaning of glory when we look at God. Therefore, if we aren't rejoicing, if we aren't praising God, if we aren't celebrating the glory of his name, there are only two possible reasons. There are just two possible reasons and only two logically. Either we are not looking and listening or God's not glorious. Those are the only two options. If we're not rejoicing, the only logical possibilities are that God's character is not worthy of praise or we aren't paying attention. 
Either is tragic. Of course, it's possible that we don't know how to pay attention. We don't know how to look at God's character, and thus we don't know how to rejoice. And that's a big reason why God gave us the Psalms. My friend Bob Richardson shared with me this book, uh, Praying the Bible, by uh, Donald Whitney, one of my favorite authors. He has a great comment on why Yahweh gave us the Psalms, especially these Psalms, like 66, the Psalms of rejoicing. Look at what he says. It's as though God said to his people, I want you to praise me, but you don't know how to praise me. I want you to praise me not because I'm an egomaniac, but because you will praise that which you prize most, and there is nothing of greater worth to you than I. There is nothing more praiseworthy than I, and it is a blessing for you to know that. It will lead to your eternal joy if you praise me above all others and above all else, and to your eternal misery if you do not. He goes on. But there's a problem. You don't know how to praise me, at least not in a way that's fully true and pleasing. In fact, you know nothing about me unless I reveal it to you. Therefore, since I want you to praise me, and it's good for you to praise me, and since you don't know how to praise me, here, here are truths about me, close quote. The Psalms, along with the rest of the Bible, show us God's character so that we can then rejoice over his glory. All God's people said? Looking in at verse 3, verse 3. Say to God, how awe-inspiring are your works. Your enemies will cringe before you because of your great strength. His works are awe-inspiring. It's incredible to imagine all the Lord has done and continues to do. Those who refuse to rejoice over his amazing works are willfully blind. And you know what they do? They bring condemnation on themselves. The Apostle Paul would pick up on this argument. He would take the argument of verse 3, and he would expand on it in his great treatise in Romans chapter 1. Listen, listen to how Paul expands the idea of Psalm 66 verse 3. For God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all godlessness and unrighteousness of people who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth, since what can be known about God is evident among them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, that is, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen since the creation of the world, being understood through what he has made. As a result, people are without excuse. Close quote. God's works are awe-inspiring. When we really look at them, we cannot help but rejoice over the logical conclusion, the only logical conclusion, which is that the Creator is glorious. The inescapable logic of this is making a marked impact in our age. This is one of the most encouraging things you'll hear today. Of course, this has been true in every age, but let me tell you, after the past 200 years of no creator nonsense being drilled into every human brain, it seems that at last people in our day are starting to think again. They're starting to think for themselves. And when you really consider it, think, guys, the idea that all of this exists without a creator is hilarious. It requires so much more faith than belief in the designer does. This explains why the leader of one of the great scientific achievements of our time, Dr. Francis Collins, was changed by his work in science. Collins entered the Human Genome Project as an atheist. He left it believing in intelligent design just because of what he saw in the human genome. He said it was an inescapable conclusion. This revolution is working its way into popular culture as well. Uh, one, of the new, one of the most um, best-selling... <laughs> yeah. You are way too young to play that game. Thank you. Yeah, one of the, the best-selling franchises in recent years are the Mass Effect games. Uh, this newest title, Mass Effect Andromeda, just released, just released the other day. There is a fascinating exchange in this game. It takes place between the hero, the captain of the ship, uh, the exploration ship, his name's Ryder, and his science officer. Okay, it runs like this. Look at this. Uh, Ryder, Captain Ryder is looking out at space. He's the pathfinder, and he's looking out at space, and he says, it's darkly beautiful. 
To which Suvi, his science officer, who has a wonderful Irish accent, she just great. Um, she says, she says, I. It's amazing to see the designer's hand. Did you catch that? This is in a popular video game. It is amazing to see the designer's hand. Now, at that point, BioWare, who is a software developer, allows the gamer to choose from three options, okay? Three options on the wheel. One is, there's no God. A second is, what do you mean? And a third is, I've always thought so. Folks, I have been playing video games since my dad first brought Pong home, at which I excelled, by the way. Um, and, and I testify to you, those last two options, those are incredibly rare, in the history of video games. By the way, if you select the what do you mean option, the scientist gives a lovely speech. She talks about how the wonders of creation are what cause her to surmise there must be a creator. And then she goes on, get this, she goes on to say further that that knowledge makes her a better scientist, not a lesser one. The apostle Paul and the psalmist would totally agree. God's works are all inspiring. They testify to his glory, fist bump, all right? Further, God's future is praiseworthy. Look at verse 4. Verse 4, all the earth will worship you and sing praise to you. They will sing praise to your name, Selah. An era is coming when God's prophecies all unfold. The entirety of the planet will worship. They will recognize and respond to God's glory. All will sing praise. They will praise the glorious name of Yahweh. God's people said, amen. amen. Now, see the notation Selah after verse 4? That appears throughout the Psalms. We aren't exactly certain. Nobody knows for certain what that signifies. Uh, it was so assumed that nobody ever wrote down what it was. Um, most scholars think it means a pause or a, a rest in the song. The satirical geniuses at the Babylon Bee recently had a different idea about Selah. Let me read you some satire. Listen to this. Um, from Israel, fake news. Ancient documents uncovered by archaeologists working in the West Bank confirmed Friday that the disputed term Selah, present throughout the Psalms and Habakkuk, is actually best translated, extended guitar solo. <laughs> While many scholars had previously believed that the Hebrew word referred to either a period of quiet reflection and musical pause or a time of heightened musical crescendo, the recent discovery of scrolls in remarkable shape lend overwhelming evidence to the theory the term actually instructed Hebrew worship bands to shred across all six strings in a blistering melodic guitar solo. There you go, Alex. This is an astounding find. It really can't be overstated. Biblical archaeologist Dr. Thomas Earle told reporters excitedly, it seems like Scripture now confirms it's okay to wail if the Spirit so moves. <laughs> Close quote. That's funny. By the way, I think a guitar solo is a great idea for Selah, but we still aren't exactly certain about the word. Let's read the next section that comes after Selah, verse 5. Come and see the wonders of God. His acts for humanity are awe-inspiring. He turned the sea into dry land. And they crossed the river on foot. There we rejoiced in him. We're reminded that the, that the ultimate king cares. That's the note on the right side of our bulletin. The ultimate king cares. That's what this, this whole section is about. In verses 5 and 6, we're told the ultimate king does inspiring things for undeserving humans. For Israel, the original audience of this song, the singer reminds of two massively important acts of God in their history. First, God parted the Red Sea, forming it into dry land for Israel to cross. This, is, this represents an incredible change. You, you know, Israel entered the Red Sea as slaves, and they exited it as a free people. And then, a generation later, God caused the Jordan River to part at its flood stage. The barrier, the natural barrier that was keeping them out of their promised land turns into dry land, and they entered the Jordan River as a people. They emerged from it as a nation. 
This is incredible, incredibly important beauty of what God does for his people. And the Israelites there built altars and they built cairns of stones. They remembered, they rejoiced right there. They delighted in God and the miraculous, inspiring things that he does for an undeserving people. I think we'd be remiss if we didn't do the same right now. We should not miss the opportunity to rejoice, so share with me, please, what has God done for you? The King of glory cares for you. He shows it in manifold ways to undeserving people like you and like me. So let's share some of them. I I would love the long stories, but for time, just give me a one-sentence summary. What is something God has done for you? How has he blessed you? Raise your hand, and let me me call on you. Yes. Giving you a great family. And you're not just saying that because they're sitting there beside you. That's very nice. Amen. And we are grateful. Yes, right there. Amen. Healed me of horrible pain. Amen. Amen. How about something in the middle section? I haven't had a middle one. Come on. Don't let me down. The other side's coming. I'm going to call on you. I know. Yes. He's provided for you in every way, in, in, in ways even beyond comprehension. Beautifully said. Those are, those are all worthy of praise indeed. Thank you. Thank you all. Now, see how the Israelites rejoiced right there? Look at that. There, it says, at the place of impact. Do we? Do we stop and rejoice in an appropriate response to the inspiring things God does or not? You know what we usually do? Listen up, kids. Here's what we usually do. If there's any pain, if there's any lament, if there's any injustice or anything unfair, we tend to excuse ourselves and say, well, because there's some stuff that hurts, I don't need to rejoice over these. I might later when I see them in hindsight, but when I see God parting the sea, if I've got a blister on my foot, then I don't have to praise him for getting to walk through. Does, does that make sense? And it's killing us. They praised God there, right there. Let me illustrate with this. 1967, two black students graduated from a university in the southern United States. Four years earlier, the Red Sea had parted, allowing them to enter the previously horribly, ridiculously, wrongly segregated college. But they got to be students. Praise God for that change. Now, four years later, the Jordan River is parting, and they get to emerge as graduates, awarded degrees. Awesome, right? Just awesome. One of these two black graduates rejoiced. She was grateful. She was praising God there that day, and she has continued rejoicing ever since. I have met her, and she is an inspiration always rejoicing in the Lord. The other graduate did not praise God. He's a wonderful man. He was a brave man in many ways, a very brave man, but he became bitter. No other word for it. He became bitter. He was a pastor and really a very good pastor in many ways, but his focus was always on the human. It was always on especially his own efforts and other people's failures. The female grad said recently, and I quote, she didn't say this to me, she said it to a publication, I love the university. It opened up opportunities I would never have had. It was a safe place where I got to be challenged and grow, close quote. Before his death, the other graduate spoke often about how unsafe he felt on campus. I quote from him, I felt intimidation if I walked through the campus slowly. Though no one ever confronted me negatively, I just felt unsafe, close quote. Folks, they were the same color on the same campus at the same time, enduring the same problems, receiving the same blessings. One felt safe, the other didn't. Why? Because one rejoiced at everything God provided, and the other did not. It is as simple as that. 
Sure, there are other factors, but none is as significant as this big difference. One of them was grateful to God, the other was not. Now think, which are we more like? Do we rejoice or do we not? God gives us blessings all the time. Listen, I'm really concerned for you. I want you to listen very carefully. You miss the opportunity to rejoice over those blessings then and there, and bitterness is your inevitable end, period. Verses 7 through 9 display another aspect of the ultimate king's care. Look at verse 7. He rules forever by his might. He keeps his eyes on the nations. The rebellious should not exalt themselves, Selah. Praise our God, you peoples. Let the sound of his praise be heard. He keeps us alive and does not allow our feet to slip. Here's another aspect of the ultimate king's care. He's forever in charge. Now, there are both, both macro and micro aspects to God's sovereign care here. Look, look at it. He's ruler of the nations, right? He rules forever. He's the sovereign one, and those who would exalt themselves would be wise to stop and think. Selah indeed. The micro part's found in verse 9. He's the reason we individuals even breathe. The Lord doesn't even allow us to die until it is the right time and place in his plan. Now, now this combination, macro, micro, it's incomprehensible from a human perspective. You and I cannot fathom a king truly involved in a massive worldwide enterprise who also knows and cares about the details of each and every individual. We can't understand this. That's why our stories aren't like this. Our stories are always peppered with choices between greater good and individual, right? That's what we do. Lots and lots of our stories are full of this. And it seems really brilliant to us, but God says it's a false syllogism. It really has no grounding in truth because Yahweh is not human. He's not human. We can rejoice because he can deal with both the macro and the micro in the same moment. John Mark Hall and his band Casting Crowns wrote a great song on the ideas here in verses 7 through 9. We sing this song here sometimes. Here's what they wrote. Rescued from darkness, we're walking in marvelous light, for we are children of the King. Sing! You are worthy of our honor, glory, praise, and power, King of the nations. Now, they reversed 66, but you get the idea. Look, they covered the personal connection, verse 9, first, we're children of the King, and then they dove into God ruling over the nations, verse 9. We rejoice, we sing, because the king of the nations cares about every single one of his kids. All God's people said, amen. amen. Now look at the next section, verses 10 through 12. For you, God, tested us. You refined us as silver is refined. You lured us into a trap. You placed burdens on our backs. You let men ride over our heads. We went through fire and water, but you brought us out to abundance. The whole section here, verses 10 through 20, teaches that we rejoice because, because God develops us. 10 through 12 reveal how God stresses, he stresses us for refinement. Jana and I are very blessed to host a young adults Bible study at our house. Uh, currently, that group is working through the Frisco Bible Church curriculum on Exodus. When we got to Exodus chapter 2, our Bible study was struck by the pain the painful refinement that God allowed to work over the Hebrews and how that parallels what we see elsewhere in Scripture and in our own lives. The curriculum, the church's curriculum, had this excellent comment. Based on Exodus chapter 2, the curriculum said this, in the most difficult times, it can seem that God has abandoned us. We can wonder if he hears our prayers or if he even cares. Though we feel isolated from him, he is still the God who sees. We can cry out to him knowing that he will hear us. Nothing is hidden from his eyes, close quote. Now, we read that, and then in our large group discussion, one of the ladies shared this really fantastic thought. She said this. I scribbled it down as she spoke. 
knowing God is purposeful changes my attitude toward the pain. It may cause me to wrestle more with him, but that's always good. More often, knowing he knows and has a plan makes it easier for me to engage with him in the process, close quote. Isn't that well said? That's what verses 10 through 12 are detailing. God is continually reforming his people. He's sanctifying them, moving us, in Scripture's memorable phrase, from glory unto glory. To achieve that end, Psalm 66 says, Yahweh even lures his people into traps, not because he's wicked, but because he wants to purify them. He wants to strengthen them. Because when we're trapped, think, when we're trapped, we realize that we were foolish to go into sin and nonsense in the first place. And that makes us cry out to God. Now, of course, that isn't the ideal. The Lord gives us Scripture so we can walk wisely and rely on Him without having to go through the messes of defeat. But even defeat, even defeat makes us stronger in the end because we learn and we grow in God's hard school of experience. The good people with Nolan's cheese in Great Britain created the perfect illustration of verses 10 through 12. Take a look. Such a feeling's coming over me There is wonder in most everything I see Not a cloud in the sky Got the sun in my eyes And I won't be surprised if it's a dream I'm on the top of the world <laughs> This is the end I showed you this years ago, but it was too good not to show again. rejoice because God develops us. He, he, he stresses us. He does for refinement to make us stronger. And then, and then God accepts our follow-through of thanksgiving, verses 13 through 15. I will enter your house with burnt offerings. I will pay you my vows that my lips promised and my mouth spoke during my distress. I will offer you fattened sheep as burnt offerings with fragrant smoke of rams. I will sacrifice oxen with goats, selah. The restoration of verse 12 leads the psalmist to talk about abundant thanksgiving. Now, note, look, at, look at your text. Notice the oddity here. You've got a sheep, ram, goat, and bull sacrifice. Guys, there, there is no normal Old Testament offering that utilized all these different sacrifices. And, and notice his offering is burnt. Okay? What that means is the psalmist doesn't go home with any cooked meat. Okay? It means everything is all of it offered up to God. This is over the top. It's above and beyond the norm by, by a wide margin, and that's the whole point. The psalmist is so thankful for God's development of him that he's offering up a lot. This represented a significant portion of the typical Israeli's wealth. But in his time of need, he cried out to God. So now he wants to follow through with thanksgiving, and this is how life is supposed to work. Earlier in this series, Pastor Jeremy taught us about the Psalms of Lament. 
And we learned that lamentation is important and that lamentation done right, lamenting before the Lord, always, always leads to eventual thanksgiving. It always leads to rejoicing. It's a big idea. It carries wholesale over into the New Testament. Look at Peter's words on this subject. First uh, Peter chapter 1. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. So the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found a result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You see how it works? Trials, testing, traps, they're all for our development. And as a result, we glorify God. We rejoice now, there, then, now, and we rejoice forever. That takes, us, that takes the psalm to the logical conclusion. Logical conclusion is that God's hesed changes us. I'll explain. Read verses 16 through 20. Come and listen. All who fear God... And I will tell what he's done for me. I cried out to him with my mouth, and praise was on my tongue. If I'd been aware of malice in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. However, God has listened. He has paid attention to the sound of my prayer. May God be praised. He has not turned away my prayer or his faithful love from me. Over 150 years ago, the great German scholar Franz Delisch wrote my all-time favorite note about Psalm 66. He's talking about verse 16. And, and Dr. Franz said this, the address goes forth to, I'm kidding, the address goes forth to the widest circles, to all who fear God, wherever they may be on earth. He would tell them all that God has caused him to experience in order that God might be glorified and they might be benefited. Love that. He's right. The psalmist is reaching out to all peoples of all places and all times, including me, right here today in Frisco, Texas. Now, all who fear God is a particularly Hebraic way of describing all of the people who trust Yahweh. When you know, think about it, when you know a little bit about God, even if you know just a little bit about God, you understand at least a bit of his awesomeness, right? You're in awe. You're in awe of him, and, and if you think you're humbled that he would enter into a covenant relationship with people who don't deserve it just because of his grace, you realize that he could, and but for grace, he should obliterate all of our sinful lives in a moment. All of that's wrapped up in the idea of fearing God. And it, and for that audience of God-fearers, the psalmist cries out with his mouth. You see that? That's significant. That shows that this wasn't just a, a personal thing he kept to himself. He cries out loudly. Dr. Dilich uh, points out something really fascinating. Uh, the psalmist was ready to praise God. He was primed to rejoice. I like this so much I put it in your notes. Look what he said. A hymn was under my tongue. That is, I was so sure of the hearing of my prayer that I already had in readiness a song of praise. See also Psalm 10 which I would strike up when the implored help which was assured to me should come. He was ready to praise God. Awesome. Is that true of me? Is that true of you? In the struggle of today, whatever it is, every day has a struggle. In the struggle of today, am I ready to rejoice? Based on what I see, I think the answer is no. Based on what I see in traffic around here, people are ready to be angry. Based on what I read in lawsuits, people are ready to be offended. Based on what I hear among Christians, people are ready to be self-centered. But none of that's worthwhile. None of that deals with the full truth of life. And the truth is, God has blessed us richly, and we should be always ready to rejoice. Amen? Now, verse 18 is particularly tough to translate. It could mean what my Holman translation implies, that purposeful deceit blocks my communication with God. 
I suspect the New American Standard is closer to the original meaning. It reads, if I regard wickedness in my heart, the Lord will not hear. In other words, if I focus on my sinfulness and wallow in it, that puts up a communication barrier with God. Either is true. Our prayers can be hindered by self-centered wallowing or by purposeful deceit. Wallowing in, in self-focus, you know what that does? It keeps you from rejoicing. There's always something else to be upset about. Deceit is foolish with a God who sees everything. And deceit, of course, is the opposite of honest engagement with him. Thus, the Psalms' point is not that we need to be sinless in order to pray. That's absurd and impossible. The point is to stay on topic, to stay on target, to stay engaged with God, honestly rejoicing with God and with God's people. Wonderfully, God does hear this prayer. He works the, the self-centeredness and the deceit out of my soul so I can communicate in our relationship. And look at verse 20. That communication is only possible because of God's hesed, what, what is translated faithful love in, in my Bible. Hesed's a special term for God's covenant. This is God's unbreakable love. Because of God's covenant love, we who don't deserve it are accepted by him. We are granted a relationship forever with a perfect father. We're being sanctified so that our prayers are not hindered. We rejoice because in God's hesed, we are changed. My old mentor, Sumner Wimp, who's now with the Lord, he had a particular quality that I, I hope appears often in me. Dr. Wimp never got over the fact that Jesus loved him. He never recovered from the truth that God showed a hesed to an undeserving kid from Florida. He was always ready to rejoice. You know why? Because he was always aware of the truth that Jesus, God the Son, died on the cross for him, for Sumner. He was every day amazed that Jesus rose from the dead so he, Sumner Wimp, could have an eternal relationship with God. And that's why my old mentor was always smiling. Even when he was old and in pain, he was always smiling, always sharing the gospel. The man was always rejoicing because of God's hesed. And I pray the same is true for us. I pray the same is true for me. Pray with me, please. Let's pray together. Father, I pray for all these believers in Jesus that we will follow you in rejoicing. May we rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. And Lord, I pray for those here who aren't believers in Jesus. I beg you to draw them to you. Friend, listen. Jesus is God the Son. And he did die on that cross and he rose from the dead so that those who trust him could have God's hesed. Those who fear God, those who believe in Jesus could have an everlasting relationship. Right now, do that. Trust Jesus, God the Son, who died and rose for you. Why don't you start here? Talk to him and tell him that you are a sinner. That, that you're not holy and God is Selah. And thank God that he has made a way for you in Jesus, that he paid for your sin so that if you believe in him, you could, you could be clean, justified before God and in, a, and in an awesome process of being sanctified until forever when you're going to be glorified at the appearing of Jesus Christ. Thank him for that and, and tell him, I trust Jesus. I receive him as my Savior. If you just trusted Jesus, raise your hand. 
Act on what's true. Raise your hand. Good for you. That's precious. Father, I pray for these believers and for myself that we will stop our whining and start rejoicing. In Jesus' name, amen.